0: You're listening to The Corbett Report, corbettreport.com.
1: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on the 16th day of July, 2011. I would like to welcome all of the listeners to the Corbett Report podcast as always, and invite you all to look into my website, corbettreport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted in the past, and links to other alternative media news and information websites like globalresearch.ca. I would like to once again remind the listeners that I will be going on summer hiatus after the completion of this podcast episode and some more videos that will be coming out in the next over the course of the next week. But uh, basically, after this, we will be on summer hiatus, and that means that the Corbett Report website is going to be updated very, very sparsely in the next few weeks. And I, as I said last week, I do hope to have a few uh, videos up my sleeve to drop during the hiatus, but other than that, there will be no real activity going on until... Really, the middle part of August. So I definitely hope you'll stick around for that, and I hope you will use this summer hiatus time to look through the archives of the Corbett Report and go through some of our previous interviews, episodes, and... videos, but maybe you just need a rest from the Corbett Report for a little while, like I also need a bit of a rest, and uh, hopefully can use this summer hiatus to get recharged and to come back bigger and better than ever, and as I said in the latest episode of New World next week, once I come back in mid-August, it's going to be all 9-11, there's going to be a lot of 9-11 related information, updates, videos, articles, interviews, and podcast episodes coming out from mid-August on to the 10th anniversary of 9-11, coming up obviously on September 11th, 2011. So please look forward to all of that flurry of information once I get back from my summer vacation. And uh, in the meantime, again, I certainly hope that you enjoy your summer, and I will attempt to stay cool in the sweltering heat. Uh, Definitely getting hot here in Japan. And uh, once again, I would like to wholeheartedly and sincerely thank all of you who have either purchased a copy of the 2009 Video Archive DVD or uh, so signed up to be subscribers to the Corbett Report, giving a monthly 100 Japanese yen donation, again, that you can cancel at any time that you uh, feel you'd like to. But uh, your support in those uh, in that regard is greatly appreciated, as are all of the contacts that I get through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. Again, I don't have time to get to everyone and to respond to everything that comes in but I certainly do appreciate the information. But uh, as a caveat and a warning, please note that as I will be on summer hiatus and being go, traveling on summer vacation, I will not be at my computer to answer emails or to, to look through um, new orders for the DVD that are coming in or anything like that. So uh, for the next few weeks, there won't be very much on my side at all, so please keep that in mind. And without further ado, again, we have a huge episode today, so let's get straight into it. Welcome, my friends, to episode 195 of the Corbett Report podcast, Five Documentaries That Will Blow Your Mind. And as I hope it doesn't take too much brain power to figure out from that title, yes, we are going to be playing snippets from five different documentaries today that I have found particularly interesting and with particularly useful information that I wanted to convey to you, much in the same manner as episode 183 of this podcast, five lectures that will blow your mind. Well, today we're going to be looking at some different documentaries, obviously coming from an alternative angle or uh, from a non-corporate mainstream angle that... I think, reveal something about the world that we're living in. And let's start off today, let's get straight into a documentary called The Lightbulb Conspiracy. And as near as I can tell, this is being described online as a Norwegian TV documentary and uh, I don't have a lot of details on on who it was made by or when or how. I, I have a link to the IMDB, which indicates this is a 2010 documentary. At any rate, I uh, will put the link to the online version of this documentary, where you can watch for free at topdocumentaryfilms.com, and I will put that link up so you can watch the entire documentary for yourself, which I highly recommend doing, and uh, it's, it's an extremely interesting uh, documentary, and the central conceit of this documentary is... Basically, a sort of, not a follow-up, maybe an addendum or an adjunct to our previous uh, podcast episode on how to spin gold from straw. Well, there we talked about the idea of artificial scarcity as one way that corporations and the corporatocracy and the ruling oligarchy use to artificially prop up the prices of the useless, well, crap that they're trying to sell us. Well, in this way, there is another way that they can get us to keep consuming the crap that we don't need with money that we don't have, and that's by using a technique called planned obsolescence. And I'll let the documentary do the talking on this one, but again, this is another key manipulation, manipulative technique that was deliberately engineered into our society, and uh, this documentary does an excellent job of outlining exactly how that was done, and it uses the central conceit of the light bulb and talks uh, at the beginning of this documentary about a, docu- uh, a light bulb that has been burning now for well over 100 years, and and how do- uh, light bulbs were originally touted for their longevity, and that was originally one of the selling points that was used in advertising for light bulbs bulbs, how many thousands of hours they could uh, reliably put out. But uh, that was cut down, uh, deliberately cut down by a light bulb cartel that developed in the early part of the 20th century to to basically ensure that customers would have to keep buying light bulbs. And although light bulbs are certainly not the most important consumer item we could think of, and this isn't the most nefarious purpose that we could possibly think of, it nonetheless aptly demonstrates the point of planned obsolescence, which is to basically keep consumers in the cycle of producing, consuming, and throwing away the old to consume even more of the new. And uh, it's a very interesting technique that, again, has been crafted into our society, so I'll let the documentary do the talking and explain this concept. Let's listen to a, a short clip from The Lightbulb Conspiracy.
2: Planned obsolescence emerged at the same time as mass production and the consumer society.
3: The whole issue with products being made to last less long is part of a whole pattern that began in the Industrial Revolution when the new machines were producing goods so much more cheaply, which was a great thing for consumers, but consumers couldn't keep up with the machines. There was so much production.
2: As early as 1928, an influential advertising magazine warned that An article that refuses to wear out is a tragedy of business. In fact, mass production made many goods widely available. Prices fell and many people started shopping for fun rather than need. The economy was booming. In 1929, the emerging consumer society came to a full stop when the Wall Street crash sent the U.S. into a deep economic recession.
4: Unemployment reached staggering proportions. By 1933, one-fourth of our labor
2: force was unemployed. People no longer queued for goods, but for work and for food. From New York came a radical proposal on how to kickstart the economy again. Bernard London, a prominent real estate broker, suggested ending the depression by making planned obsolescence compulsory by law. It was the first time the concept was put into writing. Under Bernard London's proposal, all products would be given a lease of life with a set expiry date after which they would be considered legally dead. Consumers would turn them over to a government agency where they would be destroyed.
5: He was trying to achieve a balance between capital
6: and labor where there would always be a market for new goods. So there would always be a need for labor and there would always be a reward for capital.
2: London believed that with compulsory planned obsolescence, the wheels of industry would keep turning, people would keep consuming, and everyone would have a job. Giles Slade has come to New York to investigate the person behind the idea. He wants to find out if for Bernard London, planned obsolescence was purely about profits, or about helping the unemployed.
5: I have a picture of Bernard London. Dorothea Weitzner
2: remembers meeting Bernard London in the 1930s during a family outing.
7: Don't tell me which one he is, and let's see.
2: Oh, isn't that interesting?
7: Yes, definitely intellectual looking.
8: And you
5: met Bernard London in uh, 1933? When I was about
7: 16, 17, my dad and mother had this big Cadillac car, which was the size of a Zeppelin. Mother was driving like a chauffeur. Dad was in the front and Mr. and Mrs. London were in the back of the big limousine. Dad said that Mr. London should explain his philosophy to me. He's a very interesting man. And he just told me in a few words that that was his idea to reduce the depression. We were in an economic mess, worse than today even. He was obsessed with this idea, like an artist is uh, utterly obsessed with his paintings, you know? Uh He actually whispered to me in the car, afraid that his theory might be um, too radical.
2: In fact, Bernard London's proposal was ignored, and obsolescence by legal obligation was never put into practice. 20 years later, in the 1950s, the idea resurfaced but with a crucial twist. Instead of forcing planned obsolescence on the consumers, they were to be seduced by it.
5: Planned obsolescence. The desire on the part of a consumer to own something a little newer, a little better, a little sooner than is necessary. We certainly in America...
2: This is the voice of Brooks Stevens, the apostle of planned obsolescence in post-war America. This flamboyant industrial designer created everything from household appliances to cars and trains, always with planned obsolescence in mind. In the spirit of the times, Brooks Stevens' designs conveyed speed and modernity. Even the house he lived in was unusual.
9: This is the home that my father designed and that I grew up in. When it was being built out in the suburbs, everybody thought it was gonna be the new Greyhound bus station because it did not look like a traditional home. One of the most important things that my father felt always in designing a product is that it made a statement. He detested products that were bland and really uh, did not you know, create any desire uh, within the consumer to inspire the purchase.
5: Unlike the European approach of the past where they tried to make the very best product and make it last forever, meaning you bought such a fine suit of clothes that you were married in it and then buried in it, and never a chance to renew it, the approach in America is one of making the American consumer unhappy with the product that he has enjoyed the use of for a period, have him pass it on to the second-hand market, and obtain the newest product with the newest possible look.
2: Brooks Stevens traveled all over the U.S. to promote planned obsolescence in speech after speech. His approach became the gospel of the time. Women and
10: men alike are increasingly interested in the look of things.
11: They eagerly give their attention to what's new and beautiful and advanced.
2: Design and marketing seduced consumers into always craving the latest model.
9: My father never designed a product to intentionally fail or become obsolete for some functional reason in a short period of time. Planned obsolescence is is absolutely at the consumer's discretion. Uh, No one is forcing the consumer to go into the store uh, and purchase a product. Uh, You know, they go in under their own free will. That's their choice. Freedom
2: and happiness through unlimited consumption. The American way of life in the 1950s became the foundation for the consumer society as we know it today.
8: See, without planned obsolescence, these places wouldn't exist. There wouldn't be any products, there wouldn't be any industry, there wouldn't be any designers, architects, there wouldn't be any salespeople, cleaners, there wouldn't be any security guards. All the jobs would go. So how often do you change your mobiles? Keep mind once, once a year. once a year.
2: These days, planned obsolescence is an month. integral part of the curriculum at design and engineering schools. Boris Kanoof. Lectures on the concept of product life cycle, a modern euphemism for planned obsolescence.
8: I went shopping for you. I've got a couple of things. A pan, salt, shirt, another shirt.
2: Students are taught how to design for a business world dominated by one single goal frequent repeat purchase poster.
8: what I do I pass these round and you tell me what you think how long it takes for them to fail what the service life will be okay. designers have to understand what company they work for the company decides on a business model how often do we want to renew our products our offers so this brief is given to designers and designers have to understand and design the product in a certain way so it fits exactly the uh, the business strategy of the of the client they work for
2: planned obsolescence is at the root of the substantial economic growth that the western world has experienced since the 1950s ever since growth has been the holy grail of our economy
1: Ah yes, the concept of planned obsolescence by which objects and uh, items are consciously engineered in order to break down at a certain point. And as that documentary goes on to detail, it happens in all sorts of different areas, and all sorts of ways you wouldn't expect, including even printers that are actually manufactured or actually programmed to break down at a certain point, and you can actually hack into them and get them to start working again, but you have to go to Herculean lengths to do so, as this documentary shows, and the iPod battery uh, scandal that happened uh, in the uh, middle of last decade, and other such things where basically these things are designed to break down consciously manipulated so that they will break down at a certain point so we will continue to buy new products again a very underhanded manipulative technique but it has worked so well for so many decades and once we have this information and are aware of it we can apply it to our daily lives and hopefully we can start to uh, become wiser and stop supporting those companies which are doing this to us so let's move on to a related documentary. Well, not necessarily related, but another aspect of the techniques that the ruling oligarch used to keep us on that treadmill of buying, 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 consuming, consuming, consuming. And this time we're going to listen to an excerpt from a documentary, a very interesting, very well-done documentary called Starsuckers. This is a documentary that was released in British cinemas in November of 2009, and I will provide the link so you can go and purchase this documentary and support the filmmakers. But the central conceit of this uh, film is basically the idea that this is being narrated from a first-person per- perspective by one of the engineers of the uh, the uh, culture creation industry, the, the ways that the ruling oligarchs keep us mesmerized by celebrities and fame and all of those concepts in order to sell us crap that we don't need with money that we don't have— And this uh, documentary breaks down the various ways that that's done, I think, very effectively. So I do highly recommend watching this uh, documentary. And again, please support the filmmakers if you do appreciate this information. But uh, this documentary talks about various aspects of this. But today we're going to hone in and focus in on one particular aspect of that, which is the way that they use uh, celebrity and celebrity endorsement to get us uh, buying things, and why that, although we may pretend we, that this, these types of tricks don't affect us, we are actually psychologically hardwired to play into this type of technique. So, so we have to be absolutely consciously aware of it at all times and resisting it actively, because uh, they know how to push in all of our manipulative buttons. But again, I'll let the documentary do the talking on this. Let's listen to an excerpt from the excellent documentary, Starsuckers.
12: No matter how many celebrities we create, it's never going to be possible for everybody to join an entourage. But there are other ways we can exploit your need to be close to the famous. All from the comfort of your own living room.
6: Television uh, probably played the biggest part here. Because with television, there's an illusion of intimacy and that that visual image now quite realistic can be right in one's home giving us the illusion that we actually know these people
13: there is no way evolution could have anticipated the internet (laughs) and therefore we are stuck with a kind of brain machinery which was designed to handle face-to-face interactions it was not designed to handle virtual interactions it is a brave new world from that point of view, and that, that does mean it's easily exploited by people who can figure out how to ex- use that medium to, to, to their advantage.
14: A parasocial relationship is one of those awful technical terms which sounds more fancy than it really is. It simply means that you have a relationship with somebody which is not based upon a face-to-face relationship. It's based upon what you know about that person through the press what you know about that person through watching him or her on television, despite the fact that you never actually meet the celebrity. I say to my students that the only example that I know of where people have this deep emotional attachment to someone they've never met is the attachment that some people have to God. But the parasocial relationship is created by the media, uh, fueled by the media. And
0: we all do it.
14: We all do it, yes.
12: The more celebrities we create, the more we can capitalise on these bonds. And the younger these relationships are formed, the stronger they're going to be.
6: Now, I think there's some things that celebrities do that play right into this trick of the box. Pretending it's a two-way relationship, I think, enhances this.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a connection there, and he
14: loves it. There is this terrifying prospect that I have that it is actually replacing what we used to call real life, that people are developing stronger imaginary relationships with people who are themselves imaginary constructions, people who are
12: not real and our purpose in encouraging you to make one way friendships it's simple to make you buy stuff your urge to copy the famous influences your spending whether you like it or not
7: you see how easy it is to keep a man happy why not give your husband a carton of Philip Morris cigarettes delivers flavor twenty times a pack
10: when it's tougher than ever to be a tiger. Success is down to finding people like this. Now for the good
0: bit. If you have a debt problem and a prudent approach to banking, you could borrow anything. Which
10: could be up to three and a half times your salary. A million pounds. As long as you keep paying the premium. Is that too much to ask?
4: It's gonna cost a big fortune this lot. Don't treat me like an
6: idiot. Do you
10: have any special advice for the young
6: people who drive? Take it easy drive driving. Life you might save might be mine.
0: Celebrity <laughs> endorsement works on an emotional level. We process emotions and we process rational thought in different parts of the brain. So the limbic system, which is the very old part of the brain, that sort of says, lion on savannah, <laughs> run away. And that's where we process things on an emotional, almost gut feel level. Imagine a horse and a rider. That piece of the brain is like the horse just working away. And that's where we make decisions and do maths and use spreadsheets and... We try to control the more instinctive parts of our brain. So that's like the rider. But sometimes the rider loses control of the horse. And it's been shown in experiments. If you ask people, would you like fruit salad or chocolate cake? People will go, well, I should take the fruit salad because that's the sensible thing to do. So they'll take the fruit salad. But if you give them a really difficult task to do beforehand, so they're mentally exhausted, they'll go for the chocolate cake because that's their instinct and that's how it seems to be with a lot of emotional advertising that's not well labeled we just process it instinctively
12: these forms of advertising are most effective when you're not even aware that you're being sold to
7: this is hannah montana it's time to wake up seriously it is you know what else is serious back to school shopping so gather your list of school supplies, and don't forget Walmart has the Hannah Montana gear, the fashion, and the music you love. So be a superstar yourself and get your things together. And that's fun, and good luck this year at school.
10: Children up to the age of 8, 9, 10 don't really understand the persuasive intent of advertisements. There are people in there trying to sell you something.
3: I've no doubt our society would be much better if there was a total ban on advertising for any child under 12 and really limiting advertising towards teenagers. It's
10: possible that there is a link between increasing materialism and the mental health problems that an increasing number of our children show.
3: In the last ten years something has shifted. The number of young people now that would say that a good life is about money, it's about fame, it's about appearance has shot up dramatically. That's what our young people believe and why wouldn't they? Because that's the value system that they're picking up from the media the media do not want to hear this message it is not in their interest for people to be saying that part of the problem with well-being or confidence or whatever might be the media and that one of the best and easiest ways for people to actually look after their mental health is to cut down on media consumption they don't like it.
12: As we set the public agenda we'll avoid giving exposure to anything that will discourage you wanting more of our product. By attaching a product to a familiar and likeable face, we've developed an unstoppable means of making you spend what you don't have on things you don't need. Most people will say that these tricks don't affect them, But that makes the tricks even more potent. How can you fight something if you don't believe it exists? So strong are these bonds that every piece of information about our celebrities is valuable to you. When we insert famous faces into your
6: eyeline, you're guaranteed to stop and look. The need to gather social information about the people around us who we perceive as influential and powerful is something that is embedded deep within us. There's some studies that have been done at Duke University on rhesus monkeys. And they can do one of two things. And they, they have a little device hooked up to the eyes so people can see which way the monkeys are looking at. And if they look at one screen, they get a squirt of Juicy Juice, which is, you know, payment or reward. Or they can look at another screen and see a series of pictures. And what Platt found was, is that these monkeys were willing to give up food or pay for two things. One were to look at the hindquarters of females, okay, I don't need to explain that and the second were the dominant monkeys in the group. But why would they give up food? Why would they pay, in effect, to look at the pictures of the dominant members of their group? And the answer is that that information is it's valuable social information. So the more I know about the dominant monkey in my group, when he eats, where he sleeps, who he likes to mate with, and that way increase the chances of my own survival. But that mechanism is still firing. It's like a ghost ship and we're not getting anything out of it, we're not ingratiating ourselves to them, we're not enhancing our own abilities to survive, but the mechanism still fires, 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 and we're looking at these pictures.
1: Well, I, for one found that particularly interesting, especially the monkey test that showed how uh, people are willing to pay, so to speak, in order to watch celebrities and how that may be hardwired into us. It might be a psychological thing that that we cannot escape, so we have to be absolutely aware of and consciously. Uh, guarding against at all times and again no one's perfect and we can all fall into the trap of being mesmerized by these ridiculous celebrity stories that are dangled in front of us as news and just as a side note that documentary goes on to talk about the tabloids in in britain including the news of the world and how they use uh, celebrity stories that in often often cases most cases they are completely manufactured because they pay people for these leads and tips and they show how you can call them up and give them a completely ridiculous engineered story and they will run with it as a headline so uh, again a very fascinating documentary and it really does break down the uh, the culture creation industry and how that's used to manipulate us and we've looked at that before in this podcast but usually from a social engineering perspective this is uh, coming at it more from a, a consumerist perspective how they can keep us buying and consuming their crap well, let's move on, let's shift gears to a completely different subject, and uh, we're going to l- take a look at The Age of Transitions, which listeners may know is the documentary from Aaron Franz, who was the one of the featured guests on last week's podcast episode, episode 194 of this podcast. And uh, obviously, The Age of Transitions is a documentary about uh, transhumanism, which is Aaron Franz's forte. And this documentary actually comes free when you order a copy of Aaron Francis's book, Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood. So I'll put in a link to Aaron Francis's homepage, theageoftransitions.com, where you can subscribe for free to his podcast. And you can also order the book and get the documentary for free while you're at it, which I highly recommend because this is, I think, one of the best short breakdowns that to really put it in a concept and terms that people can understand and back it up with copious documentation. Lots of really very interesting documents, including... An extremely important breakdown of Charles Galton Darwin, uh, who I think most uh, not enough people talk about, because really his writings in the next million years are are just incredible. And uh, I'm glad that it was so heavily featured in this this documentary and given a great breakdown and treatment. But right now, let's listen to just an excerpt from The Age of Transitions. And in this point, we're going to be listening to uh, is sort of halfway through the documentary, and it's talking about transhumanism. And because we are joining the action in medias res, so to speak, it means that uh, it starts, uh, this clip starts off with a, a, what sounds like a sweeping generalization about transhumanism that might sound absurd, um, taking this out of context and in the middle of the documentary, but I assure you, if you go and watch the entire documentary from the beginning, there is copious ev- evidence and documentation... Uh, basically detailing everything up to this point, so so these big generalizations about what transhuman is, transhumanism is and what it's aiming at it are not such big sweeping generalizations, after all, they're just a summary of what has already been de- uh, presented in the documentary. But having said that, I think this uh, goes on to really break down and outline some of the worrying aspects of transhumanism and talk about some of the documents that that show us exactly what is being planned for this movement, this, this new religion, as it has been expressly touted by some. So... So again, a very interesting, very important subject, a very good documentary that I highly recommend. Please go to ageoftransitions.com to check it out and check out the rest of the work from Aaron Franz. But right now, let's listen to a clip from the documentary.
13: Transhumanism fills people's minds with hopes and dreams of becoming superhuman, but the fact of the matter is that the true goal is the removal of that pesky human sexual urge and ultimately of free will itself. Post-humanity will be a new human, which has been genetically engineered and brain-chipped for total control. Part man and part machine, the new man will no longer be in need of his sexual reproductive function. I understand that this is not what the average transhumanist wants to hear, but we must realize that such a bizarre and horrific future is not only possible, It is intended. Although we won't arrive at this point overnight, first we must step into the world of virtual reality where our identity as purely human will blend with that of our new virtual persona. By 2020, there'll be an entire three-dimensional universe in cyberspace with virtual countries and governments, virtual schools and universities, virtual property and stock markets, and virtual families and friends. Virtual reality is going to become more and more like real reality, but have the advantage that I can share a virtual reality environment with someone else even if they are hundreds of miles apart and we can be in the same environment and we can be other people and we can change environments quickly and it has a lot of advantages over real reality.
10: I think in 10 years, things like Second Life will, will become as prevalent as email is now. And I think virtual worlds will, will become a similar way for people to get together, you know, communicate, collaborate.
2: I can see in the future that
12: it's going to be so much more capable than it is today. And I'm going to love it.
5: If a machine is passing down signals that keep you completely happy, then why not be part of the Matrix? I I really do think uh, Neo in the Matrix trying to destroy things, he's a bit of a party pooper. Um, Life for humans in a Matrix could be really cool.
13: To give skeptics the benefit of the doubt, perhaps this version of post-humanity is pure speculation. However, converging technology does present the need for radical change within society, no matter how it is applied. This point is made over and over again in the National Science Foundation 2001 report. The age of transitions refers to the fact that global society will be in flux during a time of massive changes. Making this point clear, the report goes on to explain the need for sociotech, which is the predictive science of societal behavior. the multiple drivers of human behavior have long been known. Now, through the decoding of complex systems, a completely predictable and managed society can be realized. To use the tremendous computing power we now have to integrate data across these fields, to create new models and hence new understanding of the behavior of individuals. The ultimate goal is acquiring the ability to predict the behavior of an individual and, by extension of groups using tools and approaches provided by science and technology will raise our ability to predict behaviors it will allow us to interdict undesirable behaviors before they cause significant harm to others and to support and encourage behaviors leading to greater social goods the enforcement of pre-crime as in the film minority report is their stated goal The planning of this Orwellian system has even spawned a whole new science, memetics, which is the study of memes. A meme is any idea which passes from one person to others, eventually becoming a norm throughout society. Memetics would allow a deeper understanding of the collective cognitive processes throughout society. The applications are, of course, oriented toward social Darwinism.
0: Mometics is founded on the principle of universal Darwinism. Darwin had this amazing idea. Indeed, some people say it's the best idea anybody ever had because the idea was so simple and yet it explains all design in the universe. All, all, all design in the universe.
13: Certain ideas may have the force of a social virus We can't let any social viruses bring down the species now, can we? Prior efforts to Darwinize culture have a long and ignoble history. What is new that might allow progress this time around? Not surprisingly, the report also gives a visionary solution to the war on terror. Sociotech can help us win the war on terrorism it can help us to understand the motivations of the terrorists and so eliminate them. At this point, it's important to understand the legal definition of the term terrorist. Since 9-11, a mountain of legislation has been passed, including the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the John Warner Defense Act, and countless others. All of which have, through their legislative cunning, rendered the term terrorist so ambiguous that you can be deemed a terrorist for any reason at all. You can be taken to a secret prison without charges, without habeas corpus, and with no rights whatsoever. These laws were not written on a whim. They were specifically designed to give the government carte blanche authority over the people during the chaos and confusion of the Age of Transitions. And so this transition is perhaps the most important transition of all time. Some people don't want it. They fear this transition because this transition is to a planetary civilization tolerant of many cultures. These are the terrorists. In their gut, they fear this because they know they are witnessing the birth pangs of the beginning of a new planetary civilization. And the terrorists want nothing to do with it.
1: Yes, that was something of an audio hallucination that you were experiencing at the end of that clip with our old friend Professor Michio Kaku explaining that the terrorists are the ones who will be resisting this new world transhumanist order, and that's not terrorists as it very much sounds like, that's terrorists, as in Terrans, as in the, the original substrate humans, the people who will resist all of this microchipping and implanting of cyborgian technologies inside of our future bodies. Well, at any rate, uh, that's a point that uh, Aaron Franz makes clear in that documentary, and I would very, very much recommend that documentary for all the fascinating documentation of the transhumanist agenda that it offers. And of course, again, it is free once you purchase his book, Revolve: Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood from the Age of com. But now let's move on to another well scientific uh, type uh, documentary, and it's going to be from our old friend at the BBC, Adam Curtis. And Adam Curtis is an interesting figure, and I have definitely played his documentaries before on this podcast. Of course, we've heard clips from The Power of Nightmares, The Trap, The Century of the Self... And uh, and I have definitely referred to him before, and uh, I definitely do find things of use and, and information, valuable information, in many of his documentaries, which is why, obviously, I play clips from his documentaries. But just as last time we listened to a bit from an Adam Curtis documentary when I was talking about the Rand Corporation, and I did have that caveat that uh, Adam Curtis is maybe not what he appears to be, and is someone who... I think we need to be examining with a more critical eye, because there are people out there who seem to think uncritically that he is somehow on the side of the quote-unquote truth movement. He most certainly is not. And uh, I think that becomes evident once you really start uh, taking a look at the overall ideology, philosophy, and the, the thrust behind his documentaries. And uh, it's interesting that I got a feedback from a listener recently who I guess has heard uh, some of the episodes in which we've played uh, various clips from uh, Adam Curtis before, and he was uh, trying to warn me against Adam Curtis. Well, I, I certainly am aware that Adam Curtis is not the, uh, the person that a lot of people think he is. And uh, to me, this is perhaps even more worrying than, than just blatant outright hit pieces by the BBC or other, uh, or other organizations. Uh, those can be dealt with in a calm, logical, rational manner, and we can just simply lay out all the facts and demonstrate that, uh, that their, their hit pieces are ten times more ridiculous than that which they're attempting to debunk. But in cases like Adam Curtis, where he appears to be on our side and, and appears at certain times to be unearthing information that, that is helpful to us when he ultimately he's really undermining the argument, well, it's a very subtle process and one that relies on um, all sorts of techniques that he uses to manipulate the viewers. And I think it's actually worth delving into, which is why I think I probably will in the future release an entire episode simply devoted to Adam Curtis, and we can uh, delve into those techniques and how they're used and what, what the real meaning of that is, because because I think it does definitely deserve a a bit of a scrutiny. But bearing that in mind, we're going to listen to a clip from an old Adam Curtis documentary, this one from the mid-1990s, called Pandora's Box. And this is an interesting six-part series that he did, all basically around the idea of science and how different ideas of science in the 20th century were used to try to reshape society and as Adam Curtis would have it always failing miserably. Well, as with many of his documentaries, I find that some of these episodes are brilliant and really well-constructed and have excellent points and really interesting and valuable information. And then others, I think, really lose the plot and and reveal a, a different agenda. So again, I do not recommend this wholeheartedly. I don't I don't recommend this unreservedly, but it certainly is worth your attention, at least uh, for some of the information that it presents. And just as a hint, as a teaser, during my summer hiatus, I plan to release at least one episode of the Last Word series, which will make use of some information from part one of Pandora's Box. So if you want to I guess, uh, read ahead and um, and do your homework before that comes out. You can watch this uh, documentary and maybe get a taste of what will be coming from the Corbett Report during my hiatus. But this, uh, this clip that we're going to listen to is actually from part six of that documentary series. It's called A is for Adam, and this clip uh, is apropos of the Fukushima disaster. This is talking about the nuclear power industry and uh, the business interests that have shaped and molded that industry rather than the scientific uh, people who were warning about the potential danger of this technology so i think it's very apropos of our current situation so again let's listen to a short clip from a is for adam from the bbc documentary pandora's box
5: a nuclear generating plant is as
15: harmless as uh it's as harmless as a chocolate factory but a lot more nuclear power is needed nuclear power Keep America.
10: In America, the enormous nuclear plants ordered in the 60s were nearing completion. The engineers in charge were beginning to discover the trap they had set themselves by failing to redesign the containment. If a molten core could not be contained, then the emergency systems to prevent a meltdown would have to work whatever happened. The engineers had to anticipate everything that could possibly go wrong. In the enormous complexity of the plants, this was proving impossible. One of the main things we began to
4: discover is that our theoretical calculations... ...did not have a strong correlation with reality. While the regulations required emergency car cooling systems, pumps and valves... ...we didn't really have any basis for knowing that those pumps and valves would actually prevent a meltdown of the reactor because the, the degree of complexity of trying to predict what will happen inside a huge reactor in the midst of a pipe break, we couldn't make any judgments because we didn't have any
10: facts on which to make judgments. During the winter of 1971, a series of tests of emergency core cooling systems were performed at the AEC's private testing site in Idaho accidents were simulated in a small model of a reactor. In each case, the emergency systems worked, but the water failed to fill the core. Often it was forced out under pressure. Despite this, both the industry and senior members of the AEC argued that the full-size safety systems were safe enough. I think what happened was the
4: federal government and the nuclear industry decided that the absence of proof of danger was almost as good as proof of safety. In other words, even though we had done experiments that cast doubt on whether the safety systems would actually work if we had an accident, we still had that backup that, well, maybe an accident won't happen while we continue to work to perfect the design of the emergency system. Now, we couldn't announce to the public that we, having told the public that the plants were safe, we now had to disclose to them we were wrong, and then the fact that all these safety systems we told you about actually they might not do any good, my goodness, the uproar would have been, we, we, we all probably would have been fired, that would have been the end of this wonderful technology from the standpoint of us, and, and we just couldn't admit that we had been wrong. And plus, of course, you understand with this one experiment, it didn't prove that the emergency systems wouldn't work in all circumstances.
1: Once again, the stylistically fascinating and often very flawed Adam Curtis with Pandora's Box. Well, finally today, I would like to get into an extremely interesting clip from an extremely interesting documentary from an extremely interesting researcher. And people who have been watching the New World Next Week series might have seen on the latest episode that I made reference to Daniel Hopsicker's uh, work on the Venice Flying Circle, I called it at the time, off the top of my head. Of course, that was a mistake. It's the Venice Flying Circus. And um, obviously, I guess a reference to Monty Python or something of that sort. But this is really about the incredible work that Daniel Hopsicker did researching the the alleged hijackers of 9/11 and what they were doing in Venice, Florida, with three of the four pilots, the alleged pilots of the 9/11 flights, of training at a uh, at a single. Uh, airport in Venice, Florida, which is a sleepy retirement community on the west coast of Florida. And um, and he was one of the few people who actually went and researched what was happening there and, and talked to the eyewitnesses who had met these people there. And he discovered some very, very interesting facts about these people. And unfortunately, the clip that we're going to listen to really cannot do justice to the the breadth and scope of the information that he uncovered during his investigation. And uh, for that, you'll not only have to watch the rest of the this documentary but you'll also have to go and read through some of his articles and and even some of his newer documentaries like new american drug lords which has even more information about the huffman aviation school which is at the heart of this uh, scandal And again, there's just so much fascinating information here. Uh, The information that I made note of in New World next week about uh, Ada hanging out at bars, drinking alcohol, snorting cocaine, and living with a stripper, well, that comes from other aspects of uh, Hopsicker's research, and you can actually watch some of the uh, the interviews he did with some of the eyewitnesses who knew Ada at that time as he was in Venice, Florida, in this documentary. But we won't be listening to that clip. We're going to be listening to a clip that's about Huffman Aviation, the flight school that trained uh, so many of these pilots and so many other Arab uh, terrorists that was set up by a mysterious Dutchman who could not afford gas to fly from one uh, city in Florida to another, but then one year later was plopping down $1.8 million to buy out this flight school. All sorts of shady connections and things, and so this clip might be a little bit bewildering. I'm not sure what it sounds like out of context like this, but if it does sound bewildering, please use that as an opportunity to entice you into watching the rest of the documentary and reading through Hopsicker's research with the caveat that I do not support, ultimately, Hopsicker's conclusions about 9-11, because as much as he uncovers valuable information about how these alleged terrorists were really not who they were claimed to be and all of the intelligence connections going on behind the scenes with these flying schools. Well, uh, despite uncovering all of that, he nonetheless wholeheartedly buys the idea that this was ultimately a and fiendish Muslim plot, and that uh, it was basically Americans trying to infiltrate Al Qaeda and, and drug deals and things, and it went wrong and backfired on them, that type of uh, narrative, which is one that ultimately I find uh, completely unappealing. But he does uh, raise in this documentary the idea of legends, i.e., these terrorist hijackers, quote unquote, were having these legends created about them and dropping clues about their, um, you know, that they were meant to be found by people so that this uh, legend could be built up. And that's an extremely important concept, and one that I would uh, really like to flesh out, I guess, in greater detail. Maybe there will be a future episode that will talk about this aspect of things more uh, more blatantly. But uh, in the meantime, I would very much like to direct my listeners to an excellent article that I found recently from globalresearch.ca, even though it was published back in 2003. It's called *Truth, Lies, and the Legend of 9/11* by Heim Kupferberg, and I would very, very much, uh, wholeheartedly recommend people read through this because it's a fascinating account of the shape-shifting story of the uh, the hi- terrorist hijacker fi- financing that uh, that had, was coming along. And, he breaks down all the various ways that again there were legends being created about these people, and again that's a, that's an intelligence term. That's not a, just a random word. So please look up the idea of legend in its intelligence context if if you need to. But at any rate, I'll leave you with that. And um and once again, I'd like to stress that once I come back from hiatus, it was it's going to be a, a lot of nine eleven research and information coming, and it will uh, be picking up on things like the uh, the money trail and and other such aspects of nine eleven. So. Again, please look forward to that. And so with that, I'm, and with this clip from this, this final fifth documentary from today, I'm going to leave you. And uh, once again, encourage you to, uh, to use this t- summer hiatus to, to go back and familiarize yourself with some of the back catalog of the Corporate Reports work, and to stay tuned for a few of the videos that we'll be dropping in the meantime. Until then, I'll see you in mid-August.
11: Did Arab men just wander up and down the Gulf Coast of Florida as easily as if they'd been listening to Tom Petty albums all their lives? Or were they assisted by a global network? If they were, Rudy Deckers would be the place to look. In the aftermath of the tragedy, Deckers was everywhere on television, portraying himself as just an innocent businessman, victimized by the perpetrators of one of history's greatest crimes. Is he? The first thing we heard about Rudy Deckers came from a female researcher who called to tell us he sounded phony to her in his television appearances, that there was something odd about him. Was it female intuition? He sounded sincere enough to us. This
15: morning at 7 o'clock, I heard what happened, and the first thing I questioned myself was if I would have known. I would kill him by my own bare hands. Um, If I have a muslin coming in right now, I think that I'm going to be a human being and tell him, get the hell out of my property here. The day that all this occurred, we felt uh, very, very sad, like all the other Americans.
11: Deckers isn't American, he's Dutch. And his response to pass the buck on to unnamed underlings sounds a little rehearsed.
2: How was it that you first came in contact with these men?
11: Uh, I have uh, heard yesterday
15: from my employees, because I don't have contact with every student that walks in, that these two individuals came in July uh, 2000, checked our facility, said that they were flying in another facility in Tampa. They were not happy at that facility. They came back after a couple of days and decided that they wanted to fly with us.
11: That seems a simple, straightforward chronology. But compare it with the words of the chief flight instructor at Jones Aviation in nearby Sarasota, Florida who tells another story altogether. It was on or about June of, uh would have been 2000. They came up from Huffman Aviation. Um, it's not our policy normally to enroll students from other schools. It has to pretty much be an exception. And uh, in their case, I did make an exception for the reasons they gave me. Decker said terrorist Ringley Urata was already an experienced pilot when he arrived at Huffman Aviation. So were
2: they learning to fly from square one, essentially?
15: No, uh, Mr. Atta had a private pilot license already, and um, I see he, if I pronounce right, he had only a few hours. Um, They did a private pilot license with us, single engine commercial and multi-engine commercial.
11: But we soon heard this statement totally contradicted more anomalous evidence. Ida was already a pilot. He had already had a private pilot's license. Isn't that right? Not when he came here, no. He was close to getting a private license. He had uh, three-quarters of the course complete. The same course that Marwan was taking? Yeah. But, you, you, but there was no discernible difference in in training um, skills and, and skills events between the two? Between the two? Ada was the better pilot of the two, Um, but both of them, I mean, looking at them both as as two students learning together, where they were in the curriculum when they came here, they should have been a lot further along. The FBI, we learned, had known about terrorists training at Rudy Decker's flight school for some time, which probably accounts for their swift response.
2: The FBI visited you uh, just a few hours ago and confiscated some records. Can you tell us about that?
15: Um, It was yesterday, uh, 2.30 a.m. They called my managers here in Venice and uh, wanted to see two files. I came in at 7 o'clock in the morning. They were still there. I talked briefly with them. They were ready to go. I told them that we have more customers, clients from the Middle East, and I thought it was a good idea to give them all my files. So I gave them a couple of hundred files from the last years. The
11: contents of the files of Rudy Decker's Flight School might answer some persistent questions about the terrorist conspiracy's operations in Florida, and even reveal what kind of help they may have received in this country and from whom. But these questions haven't been answered because the FBI hasn't talked about what's in them. One Venice law enforcement official told us they, the FBI, loaded two Ryder trucks right outside the police station, then drove the trucks right onto a C-130 military cargo plane at Sarasota Airport, which flew out with Jeb Bush aboard. Since the FBI is not talking, maybe somebody should ask Jeb Bush. Then the cat got out of the bag, just a little bit, as it sometimes does in the immediate aftermath of a major event.
2: Let me ask you this, one of these men is widely considered to be responsible for a bus bombing in, in Israel. How was it that they could gain access, admittance to your school?
15: Well, they didn't came through uh, our paperwork uh, like they're calling from Europe, and we know two months ahead that they're showing up. As I said, they came from another flight school out of Florida, um, probably that flight school did all the INS paperwork with uh, them in their country.
11: Authorities immediately denied that the Mohammed Atta who masterminded the demolition of the World Trade Center was the same Mohammed Atta who had 15 years earlier blown up an Israeli bus. So there apparently were two separate Arab terrorists with the exact same name. But then we discovered a story from September 15th's Washington Post stating Mohammed Atta had been to International officer School at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama and that others of the terrorists had attended the Aerospace Medical School at Brooks Air Force Base in Texas and the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. Three of the terrorists had even listed their address on their driver's license as the Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida. The story went on where they participated in military exchange programs for foreign officers at the Pensacola Naval Air Station. foreign nationals who became terrorist pilots were training at U.S. military facilities, they would most likely have had connections to air governments considered friendly to the United States. And that's a big story. But when the Post story ran, authorities denied it too. So now, apparently, there are three separate Mohammedadas. Imagine that. Rudy Deckers was quick to disclaim any responsibility. He was just an innocent businessman, he told reporters.
2: And I know it's I- difficult because you in some sense, feel a little bit of responsibility,
11: don't you? No, we don't
15: feel responsible uh, for what happened at all, not, not not, nothing.
11: The terrorists were only in Venice for a short time before moving on to Florida's East Coast, Decker said. I have learned yesterday that after November um,
15: 2000, that they left this facility and went to a flight school in Pompano Beach where they had additional training for jets.
11: In later interviews, his story remained
15: much the same. Atta and Al-Sihi walked into the front door and we have no obligation whatsoever to do any background checks or passports or ID.
11: So who was to blame for the terrorist presence in our midst? Exactly six months later, Rudy Deckers, oddly enough, help provide the answer exactly six
5: months after the september 11th terrorist attacks the man who trained two of the terrorists to fly got some unexpected paperwork in the mail
2: yesterday rudy decker of huffman aviation in venice received the visa application approvals for hijackers Mohammed atta and marwan al Shahi.
11: because of some strangely suspicious timing rudy got to use the v-word right on television vindicated I don't expect on a
15: Monday morning when I come in and I open my mail to get two uh, permits from ATNLC. I thought they were already fast me. We applied for the right paperwork, and therefore I'm happy I can do that now.
11: So you feel dedicated? That- yes. And suddenly the finger of blame was beginning to point towards the lowly INS.
6: Decker says he was not surprised to receive the paperwork on Ara and he seven months after he sent it in. He said that's actually a short time. He says the process can sometimes take up to two years. The INS, meanwhile, is embarrassed by this whole situation and in a release, in a release statement says that, quote, the current system for collection and tracking information on students is outdated inaccurate and obsolete.
11: Thank God for hard-hitting American journalism. Deckers has got major public relations mileage out of the INS snafu. We suppose only a cynic would wonder if someone had planned it this way.
15: The flight schools didn't do anything wrong. The government needs to look at itself and look at procedures what they can change so this would not
11: happen anymore. But when the Dutch national whose flight school was the terrorist American beachhead was invited to testify before Congress about his views on preventing a recurrence of September 11th, it struck some observers as being a little much. Rudy and CNN seemed to have quite a meeting of the minds. Rudy was now even advising Congress, just as he had earlier offered help and advice to the FBI. The story helped to focus public anger over the terrorist attack. Venice residents like Ralph Hargis know
6: that the arrival of the applications couldn't have stopped September 11th, but they believe a more diligent INS should have.
4: Someone's dragging their feet somewhere. They let them into this country, we
5: paid the price.